And I would love it if everybody would turn in their Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read that in just a second. You know, we live in an age where commitments are sometimes hard to come by. If you follow basketball at all, you know that very recently LeBron James made a major move, the second big move of his career. By the way, if you don't know who LeBron LeBron James is, he's like the Michael Jordan of today, okay? He's, He's a great basketball player. Many would consider the greatest basketball player right now. If you don't know who Michael Jordan is, then I have no reference for you, okay? Wilt Chamberlain, okay, if you're that old. Um, Yeah, that's exactly right, if you're that old. So recently, LeBron James went from the Miami Heat back to the team that he started with in Cleveland, the Cleveland Cavaliers. And he had started with the Cleveland Cavaliers years ago because he was from Cleveland, and he wanted to play there. And so he ended up being with Cleveland. He was, a, you know, Everybody knew that he was going to be the best basketball player in the world. And so uh, he, he kind of got to do what he wanted. He, he went to Cleveland. He played for them. But it looked like they weren't going to win any championships anytime soon. And so he decided to go to Miami. Why did he do that? Well, because he, he thought My, Miami and the championships that I can win there were at that point in his life more important to him than staying in Cleveland where he was. And it's interesting that after what, two championships that they won, I think, in Miami? That he's now decided that he wants to be back in Cleveland. And the purpose for going back to Cleveland, everybody seems to say, although I haven't heard him say it, but I'm sure, I'm sure he has, is that he wants to go back now to his hometown and be in Cleveland and bring them a championship because he indeed loves them, I suppose. But isn't it interesting that in between these times of loving Cleveland... He strayed, (laughs) and he wanted to be in Miami for a while. And if you follow pro sports at all, that is what seems to happen all the time. When I was a kid, for a professional athlete to stay with one team and to stay with that team their whole career and to retire with that team was fairly routine. You know, someone like Mickey Mantle was with the Yankees his whole career, okay? And there were lots of teams that would have loved to have Mickey Mantle, but he wasn't about to leave. He stayed with, you know, with the Yankees. And nowadays, that just doesn't happen. Like, it's really strange when a player plays their whole career with the same team. And so, case in point, here in Calgary, Exhibit A would be Jerome Aginla. And... I don't want to say too much bad about Aginla. I think he loves Calgary and loved Calgary and, you know, and everything. And, and when he left, most Calgarians would say, good on him. He deserves to go and try and get a championship somewhere. But it's just interesting that it just doesn't happen anymore the way that it used to, that a player would stay with the same team. And we do live in a culture where commitments seem to not be as honored as they once were. Well, I think that the Hebrew writer is absolutely aware of that in his own culture. And I think it scares him to death. And so when he begins the book of Hebrews, he starts with what he thinks is going to be the key to these people remaining faithful when it looks like they may well be giving up their faith. In fact, I would say that's the context for this book. The reason it's called Hebrews is not because it says anywhere in here that it's written to the Hebrews. 
but that it is all about Jewish people staying faithful as they're challenged not to stay faithful. And, and when I say Jewish people, I mean Jewish people who become Christians. And now they are threatened with the possibility, I think in their own hearts, threatened with the possibility of returning to Judaism. And they're looking and going, wow, you know, life in Christ is a little bit difficult. We've noticed that the Romans don't really like us to be Christians. There are some persecutions that come our way when we turn ourselves over to Jesus. The Jews, however, had somewhat of a privileged position within that society. And so it was easy for them to say, maybe going back to Judaism is where we need to go. This looks pretty good. And so the Hebrews writer has a challenge for them. And it comes in the form of floodgates of praise that are wide open concerning Jesus. And it's kind of like this. You can imagine... Um, if you were watching the start of a movie or some poignant point in a movie and the writer, or the, sorry, the, uh, the actor walks over to the sink in the kitchen and he grabs the faucet and he's going to turn on the faucet in the sink. And just as he reaches for the faucet and starts to turn it on, all of a sudden the whole wall caves in on him in a cascade of water. And there's this huge flood. And it came because... The dam broke and he didn't know it. Or a flash flood occurred and he didn't know it. And he was just going over to turn on the tap. And instead, he gets completely inundated by water as it completely destroys the house and the wall. You've seen scenes like that in films before. Totally unexpected. And that's kind of like what happens here. The writer all of a sudden comes forth with this flood of praise about Jesus. And I can't think of a more clear, full unequivocal, magnanimous kind of praise description about who Jesus is than Hebrews chapter 1. And I want you to just follow along with me in the first four verses of this book. It's a cascade of praise. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. Oh, but in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And, and they, the question is, who is the son then? And the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven so that he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And I think you almost have to be a a former Jew to really understand the power of this proclamation. They were tempted to go back to this former system of belief. And the writer absolutely wanting to stop them from what he sees as being a huge mistake, says, no, you cannot stop believing in Jesus because of who he is. Well, I think we face some challenges today in our own lives as Christians. Just in in many ways, I suppose, like the challenges that they faced. And I do think they faced challenges. And so... 
Here are the two greatest challenges that I think we face in our world today as Christians. And you tell me if these don't somehow ring true, maybe even with your own life. The first is the challenge of naturalism. Usually, it's a challenge that comes from science and philosophy. Arguing that there is no God or that Jesus is not who he said he was. Now, if you are 15 today, anybody, anybody in here who's 15, 14, 13? Yeah, Larry, you're not 15, okay? Sometimes we think you act 15, but you're not 15, okay? If you're in school today and you're 15 or you're 16 years old, the chances of you hearing something like this as a challenge to your faith, I think, are very high. But it's not just the 15-year-olds, of course. It's the 21-year-olds who are in university as well. And it's not just them. It's also those who are 45 who are watching television. Or it's those who pick up a magazine. Because I, this is a constant now challenge to our faith. How can there possibly be a God when it looks like not only is there a universe like ours, but there are multiple universes like ours, maybe billions of universes like ours, and they stretch forever and ever, it would seem. And there doesn't seem to be some God on the outside of that. And so it's a constant challenge to our faith. The second big challenge I think we face is this. The challenge of our faith systems, of other faith systems, where we're told that there are many ways to God. And of course, this is just everywhere. When I was a kid, and I, and I became a Christian when I was 14 years old, I have to admit, there weren't many options. If you wanted to be spiritual, you were going to be a Christian or not. That was pretty much it. But now people could choose any number of different spiritual systems, philosophies, ways of looking at things beyond just Christianity. And so there is a challenge here constantly to our faith. And I don't know if these resonate so much with you, but they certainly do with me. And part of the reason is because I know people whom I love who have given into these kinds of challenges. Like, for example, when I first started in ministry, there was a guy that had his office next to mine, a dear, dear friend of mine. And he and I would praise the Lord together. We would, you know, we'd walk down the hallway singing all the time. We'd be in the washroom singing because it had such great acoustics. We loved being together. We loved praising the Lord together. We served together. He, he had the role of, of leading worship in the church that I was serving. And I was a youth minister. And I mean, we just had a great relationship. And I loved him so dearly. And I would have said, you know, that at any point, you know, he may be my best friend. And, you know, in terms of my relationship with him. And our families did a lot of things together. We've, you know, we've stayed at their house numerous times since we moved away from that area and, and that kind of thing. But about 12 years ago, my wife and I stopped, Robin and I stopped at his house, he and his wife's house. They, live in, they lived in Denver at the time, and we stopped there traveling sometime between Texas and Victoria. And, uh, and he proceeded to tell me that he had essentially lost his faith. And it was really, in this case, number one, it wasn't number two, it was number one that was for him a challenge. And I have to tell you, that it broke my heart. It absolutely broke my heart to know that someone I had loved so much 
and that had such a close relationship to Jesus Christ was now no longer the Christian that he had been. I mean, there was a time when I would have said, he's the finest Christian servant I know. There was a time when I would have said he has more integrity and devotion to Christ than anybody I know. And he lost his faith. And the fact is, is that if he could lose his faith, anybody could lose their faith. I could lose mine. If he lost his, I could lose mine. And that scares me. I could think of my children and how much I love them. And how much I want for them to know Jesus Christ as Lord. And Robin and I tried when we were raising young children to be as good of Christian parents as we could be and to shape the faith of our children as best we could. And we pray that it will continue in their lives forever and ever. But the fact is, it's a challenge. And I can't be there now for all of them. I've got Megan at home. I can kind of watch her pretty close. But my two boys... I don't know what they're doing. I mean, when I hear them, I talk to them, and I spend time with them, I, you know, I hope and pray that they continue to walk with the Lord. But I don't know that today they're not going to make a decision that I would find reprehensible. They could today make a decision to sin in some gross way that would cause them to lose their faith. That's a possibility. That scares me. Because this is what our world does to people like you and me. It challenges us and causes us sometimes to lose our faith. And so will my children continue to have faith? I sure hope so. But it's a challenge. Or I have a grandson now. This afternoon we will Skype with him. And we will ask him, what did you do in Sunday school today? And he'll tell us. And we'll ask him to recite some things. And so he will, without doubt today, at some point, recite for us John 3.16. He's three years old and he, he recites John 3.16 really well. And sometimes you can't understand absolutely every word, but you know he nailed it. And it's wonderful. And I hear, uh, he goes to a Christian school or he's, you know, he's in a Christian preschool where his mother teaches. <clears throat> And so I hear him all the time saying the kinds of things that he heard his teachers say in a Christian preschool. He quotes them all the time. And they have little chants and things that they do that keep the kids centered on faith in Jesus, which is absolutely wonderful. But how long will that last? And what kind of challenges are going to come his way? And are his parents going to be able to constantly steer him in the right direction so that he will continue down that road of faith? Will our faith remain in him as he grows older? Will the heritage that was his, at least his great-great-grandmother's, continue in him? You know, the statistics are drastically against us. And even in our own church, we have lost over the years many of our young people who started faithfully and then chose not to believe. And there are parents in our own church who grieve over the lack of faith present within their children. They pray for them daily. They hope that faith can be rekindled. But faith is, in some cases, waning. And so there's a challenge for us to be faithful to Jesus. I think for the Hebrews writer, it's probably number two here. 
that was the biggest challenge, the challenge of other faith systems. They were challenged to go back to their Judaism. And again, the Roman Empire of the day kind of caused them to do that. In our own day, I think it's probably easier to just be non-religious than it is to be Christian. And so their lives are at stake. Their spiritual lives are at stake in terms of Jesus. And many are thinking about leaving. I said a moment ago that the floodgates kind of open here. What are the kind of things that are said? Look at your text. Look at the kind of things that are said there about who Jesus is. It says previous revelations were many. They came in various ways. But they're in contrast to the one final revelation that is in Christ. And you notice it says the last days. In these last days, do you see that? The expression there, in these last days, doesn't mean, oh, just a few weeks ago. It doesn't mean just in the recent time. What it means is that in this last era, in some final way, God has revealed himself in Jesus in a way that he hasn't revealed himself ever before and never will again. And so there's this special revelation that takes place in Jesus where it's the Son who now in various ways shows himself to be God. He is the heir of all things, the text says, and not just the nation of Israel who is the heir of all things. Through him the worlds and the universe are made. He's the radiance and glory and very image of God. The word there says that he says that he has the exact being of God. It says he holds up everything, sustains it by his powerful word. He makes purification for sins and then sits down at the right hand of God in majesty and greatness because of who he is as the son. And thus the name he's inherited is greater than the names of all of the angels. And all of that takes us down through verse 4, at which point the writer begins to talk about some scriptures. He quotes the Old Testament over and over again, passages about who the Son is, especially in contrast to the angels. So you take all the heavenly realms and it says, among all the heavenly host, this one is the greatest of all. There is no one who compares to the Son. And so it's Father, Son language. The angels are never called the Son of God. The angels are never said to be the firstborn. The angels are not worshipped the way that he is worshipped. And so great things are said of the angels, but the Son is given the eternal throne. The Son has the eternal place beside his Father. He possesses an eternal rod or scepter which identifies him as the king and the one who rules over the kingdom. God has anointed him, created the heavens and the earth by him. And he's going to abide when all else is destroyed. He will have no end. His enemies will be placed ultimately under his feet. And you just have to ask the question, is there anyone or anything that compares to this in any way today? And there simply isn't. And then we move into chapter 2. A couple of things I want you to notice. First of all, look at verse 1. And notice it says that the writer, well, the writer includes himself in what is said. And this is the only place up until now where there's been any explanation at all of why it is that he's writing this book or trying to communicate anything to these people. And what he says is, is that we including himself, 
must pay more careful attention to the things that we have heard so that we do not drift away. And that's what happened to my friend. And that's what sometimes I'm concerned is going to happen to members of my family. That they will drift away. We use that image of flood at the beginning where we're swept away when we go to reach for the water tap and the wall of water comes busting through the wall and sweeps us away. In that case, in faith, in all the images of who Jesus is. But sometimes it's just exactly the opposite and we get swept away with a wall of destruction of faith. And the writer here knows that it could happen to him just as easily as it could happen to anybody else. And so he says, we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard. And there's a call there, isn't there? To you and to me. Like we don't take this as seriously as we sometimes should. Some of you may well be on the brink of losing your faith. Maybe you don't know it. Maybe you do. Maybe you've wrestled with this. And where will we be? Will we be people who continue with the commitment? Convinced of who Jesus is? We have to pay more careful attention to the things that we have heard. And it's so easy for so many things in life to just take us away from it, to take our attention away and our focus. So we must pay more careful attention. And then the second thing that's, I think, so crucial is to realize that this is indeed the challenge, the challenge of our time. I worry about what's going to happen when, as they sometimes say, 80% of our young people leave the church when they get out of high school. And we're talking about kids who are raised in the church, who go to youth group, who are involved. And 80% are not staying with the Lord when they leave. What church are we going to do about that? You know, we get carried away in this deluge of challenge when all we can think about are the things of this life. We give ourselves over to the things here rather than to the eternal Son. Our faith faith can be washed away when we make other things in our lives top priority. Faith is washed away when... Christianity is one option among many. Faith is washed away when sin gets a grip on us. And so the revealer and the sustainer and the creator, the anointed one, the firstborn who sits at the right hand of God, who sits on the throne, who is worshipped and glorified, who has all the enemies under his feet, who holds the rod of the kingdom, who has the most excellent name, who is the final revelation and heir of all things, that one we end up ignoring. 
And there simply is no room for compromise here. If something or someone or some belief takes the place in our lives of the magisterial Son of God, a huge, huge mistake is being made. And we have to be diligent about what we believe and stand strong there. You know, we just experienced the uh, anniversary of 9-11. And those of us who uh, watched that event on television uh, recognize you know, all the significance of that day. And, you know, there were 3,000 people killed. And it was this huge tragedy. And we've never been the same. Like there's a sense of vulnerability about us because of 9-11 that we will never get rid of again. Why did that happen? Like, what is it that allowed that to happen? Now, aside from the, the cruelty of some people's thinking and the, the dastardly evil mind that was in them that caused them to do that, one of the things I'm convinced that allowed it to happen was simply the complacency of our society about such things. We were convinced, I think, even if we didn't say it, that this couldn't happen here. can't happen in North America. We're too protected. Well, I don't know that anybody would say that that's the case today. Nonetheless, one of the things that's happened since 9-11 is that we did get a whole lot more diligent. I looked this week at the number of things that have uh, challenges, I should say, or, or potential terrorist attacks in North America since 9-11. Do you know that there have been at least 28 recognized significant potential attacks that were attempted by terrorists since 9-11? 28 of them. Now, if you would have asked me before I looked this week, I would have said, oh, I don't know, there's been three or four, five, six, maybe. 28 times people have planned to blow something up and to kill significant numbers of people. Some in New York, some in Los Angeles, several different places. And the authorities have been able to stop them 28 times. Why? Like, why have we not had a major event then since 9-11? One like that. Like, I mean, in comparison to 9-11... The Boston Marathon explosion isn't very much. Why has it not happened again? And I think there's only one reason. It's because of the diligence of our society to now watch and be on guard. And sometimes it's been the authorities who have, been stopped them, who have stopped them. Sometimes it's just the average citizen who just picks up on something and calls somebody. We were exposed. We recognized it. And there was a response. And I just wonder if it's not the same way with faith. That there has to be a common diligence. That we have to take this challenge way more seriously than we do. It could be a belief in another God. Or it could be that your job. Or it could be that your house. Or it could be that your status. Or it could be that your possessions. It could be that your pleasures. It could be that your leisure. Or your beautiful body and your good looks. 
All of those could well have become the challenge to your faith that you don't recognize. And we've got to be diligent to see that those things are challenges. And ultimately, it doesn't matter which of those it is. You can't serve two gods. You can't serve two masters. You've got to be aware. And the Hebrew writer recognized in his own world that there was a challenge. And he said to the Christians then, you've got to focus on Jesus if you're going to overcome this challenge to our faith. And the question is today, will we do the same? And so we have a reflective question that I'm just going to leave on the screen now or we'll put it back up maybe. Chris, maybe you could do this after uh, we play the song or after Dustin sings and we do the song, you could put this question back up and we'll reflect on it for a moment. What is it that for you poses the biggest challenge to your faith? And if you're thinking to yourself right now, well, nothing really does. I don't know if you've heard the point. (laughs) Because I think we're challenged constantly, maybe not even recognizing the challenge. God wants us to be diligent and aware and to recognize that this could happen even to us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have our eyes wide open about how tenuous at times our faith can be. Help us to recognize the significance of the challenges and help us to constantly be aware and ready and able to repel those challenges to faith that come our way. Help us to protect our loved ones and those around us that the faith that we have in you will remain for all their lives and always in the church. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.